You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them, and his recompense before them. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. And as we now turn our attention to it, as we sit under it, we pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would uh, fix our eyes more firmly on Christ and that we might be comforted by his first coming and even filled with greater hope for his second. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone here this evening. A few folks that uh, I was able to meet for the first time before the service began, so we're we're glad that you're here. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And if you're visiting with us, well, our typical Sunday preaching diet will be a uh, preaching, like a chapter-by-chapter preaching through a book of the Bible. Right now, we are working our way through the book of Exodus. But this season of Advent, where we are slowly and intentionally preparing our minds, preparing our hearts and hopes for the advent, the arrival of Jesus and his first coming of Christmas, we're just hitting a couple of major highlights from this massive book of Isaiah before we return to Exodus at the beginning of the new year. In Exodus, we have been considering among many themes, this theme of home and of exile, and that God had first dwelled with his people in the garden on the very first page of the Bible. Uh, And so much of the Genesis story is about God's people being pushed away from him into exile, and then God faithfully bringing them back again to dwell with him, which then continues on into the book of Exodus. Well, spoiler alert, this is a major theme throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Bible, and is indeed a theme that is throughout the book of uh, Isaiah as well. So last week in chapter 9, we saw that Isaiah was urging the king, he was urging Ahaz, the king of the southern nation of Judah, to not make an alliance with other wicked nations. 
uh, out, of, out of their growing fear uh, for this looming threat of Assyria. In later chapters, and with a later king, Hezekiah is another king later to be found in Isaiah. And under his reign, Assyria finally does attack Judah, finally does attack Jerusalem. And sure enough, what happens when the people are trusting in the Lord? Well, God miraculously delivers the people and 185,000 Assyrians die overnight. You can read about that in chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah. So things are just looking great at this point for the nation of Judah. There is peace in the land. God is dwelling with his people. But by chapter 39, at the end of that chapter, again, things don't look to be going well. Isaiah tells Hezekiah that by the very next generation, it is curtains for Judah. Isaiah tells of the very near future. Because of Judah's sin, because of their disobedience, because of their pride, Everything that Hezekiah owns, and many, even most of the people of Judah, including his own sons, are going to be taken away by an empire that is even bigger and badder than Assyria, the empire of Babylon, the Babylonians. And just like the Babylonians' namesake, Babel, in Genesis 11, the people are going to once again be taken away into the east They're going to be swallowed up into the kingdom and the society of the world, a kingdom and society of wickedness, of injustice, of opposition to God. It's a story throughout the story of God's people that just repeats and repeats and repeats. But things are about to get real bad, real quick for the nation of Judah. But then Isaiah, being the time-traveling time lord that he is, he flows right into chapter 40, which is a chapter of coming comfort, coming hope, for the coming exile and seeming, coming, seeming hopelessness. So Judah hasn't even been exiled away into Babylon yet, but Isaiah then is going to give comfort, future comfort for the future exile. This is all, this is all very confusing where the timeline is happening in Isaiah, but this is perhaps a little bit uh, of, an, of an orientation for us. But while none of us are experiencing forced physical exile, Author Walker Percy has some really insightful thoughts for our current condition, especially as Americans. Walker Percy says this, the fundamental mystery of the universe is why we feel so alone and alienated from our own bodies, from our own communities, from our families, and from the universe. This is supposed to be our home, he says. So why is it so unstable? And why is life so dangerous here and so hostile? And why do we have so little reprieve on this space rock? Any of us feel like this? Feel alienated? Feel alone in our own bodies, in our own communities, in our own families, on this hostile space rock? Even though we are connected, connected as Americans to more opportunities, more knowledge, more people than we could ever know in many lifetimes, we still, we still, even though we are so connected, we still feel so unconnected, so disconnected, so feeling like, feeling like nothing ever feels settled, like nothing actually, ultimately matters. Well, Isaiah 40 then is for us. We're going to get just through these first 11 verses of chapter 40 that Maddie read, but we're going to pay careful attention to four different voices that come in chapter 40 
that come preaching hope. So four different voices here, four different sections here. There is a voice of comfort, and then a voice of preparation, and then a voice of certainty, and then a voice of good news. So the first voice that comes, a voice of comfort. We read in verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, just like last week in chapter 9, if you've grown up listening to Handel's Messiah, these words will be familiar to you around Christmas time. You know these verses. You know this comfort ye, as you might know it from Handel's Messiah, or if you grew up reading this chapter in the King James. These are certainly familiar words to me, but here's something that I learned for the very first time this week in preparing for this chapter. I always thought that chapter, or verse 1, could be paraphrased something like this. Uh, comfort to you, my people, the voice of the Lord says, Uh, Like God is saying to his people, like, hey, everyone, hey, my people, I want you to feel my comfort. And while that's certainly the end result, that's actually not what's going on here. Uh, Comfort here is actually a plural imperative. It is a command to multiple people, meaning God is telling a group of people, like, hey, y'all, go comfort my people, is what God is telling his people. Whoever these people are, he's telling them to go comfort his people. And this makes verse 2 make a whole lot more sense then, doesn't it? Like he says, go comfort my people and then speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. So for the next several sections then, a voice comes. One that hears God's command to go and comfort the people and then goes and speaks to them. And this is important. It certainly carries some Romans 10 implications of Mr. V's sermon from a few weeks ago, that God brings his word, he brings the gospel of his good news primarily through his people. He brings comfort primarily through his people, through their speaking. Like there are certainly times and categories to feel the presence and comfort of God by the power of the Spirit. Certainly, that is certainly true. But I am generally most encouraged. I am generally most comforted by you all, by God's people, by your encouraging words in my life, certainly by reading the Bible, but then often even being reminded of the word of God by you, just in conversation, through ordinary encouragement, which then, here's the thing, then is actually not ordinary at all. It is the supernatural work of God to speak through his people. Now, not giving necessarily some prophetic word that I just made up on my own, but when I am speaking the word of God uh, through comforting encouragement to you, this is a supernatural work of the Lord. And this is why we take life together so seriously here at Christ Church. Certainly in uh, the necessity of meeting together here on Sundays to be encouraged by one another, and in our gospel community structures, these are necessary parts of our lives as Christians. But what is it that God is speaking here to his people? He, he is speaking comfort. So what's the problem in their lives, in Judah's lives, that need to be comforted? Well, again, they haven't yet experienced exile. They haven't yet uh, experienced loss or death. But all that's coming. And if you know the, the first couple of chapters of the book of Daniel, you know that this is the kind of loneliness, the kind of exile that the people would very soon be experiencing in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all these guys had their very names ripped from them, given new Babylonian names. 
They've lost their identity. They are subsumed into Babylonian life, their Babylonian culture, religion, and learning. If they do have jobs or daily roles, it is completely separated from anything lasting that they would hope to be doing. We might say they aren't working jobs that they are passionate about. But relatively speaking, these men and women from Judah that are exiled away to Babylon, they have it relatively good. The majority of their families were probably killed in Jerusalem when Babylon invaded. They saw their city burned to the ground. They saw the temple destroyed. They are likely dealing with daily grief, maybe even some very acute PTSD. An unknown psalmist in exile begins Psalm 137 like this. He says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, daily weeping for the exile that they are experiencing, for their longing to be home. And so it's into this context that these messengers, these voices are to come and to speak comfort. That warfare is over, that iniquity is pardoned. And now while it's absolutely not true that all trouble in life is a result of our sin, is a result of iniquity, this exile into Babylon, just like other exiles to the east throughout the Bible, beginning in Genesis 3, they come as a result of choosing not to listen to God's word. Judah here has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which is a direct reference to Exodus 22, a section of the law where robbers, robbers, those who steal, they receive a punishment that is double. So if you, in the life of Israel, you steal somebody's ox and are found guilty of stealing, then you pay back the person that you stole from two oxen. You pay back double. Judah had the land that God had given them for the purpose for which he had given it, and then they had stolen the land for their own purposes. And so God had not only taken their land from them, but they had put them in, he had put them into another land. But that time is now to be over. The time of punishment for sin is over. And the very real displeasure of God toward their very real sin is a very temporary blip in his overall disposition towards his people of love and of comfort. He will forgive their sin. He will restore them to right relationship. This is why there is real comfort to be found and real comfort to be experienced because of forgiveness of sins. And so this is an important question for us who are Christians. This is an important question for us to consider for those of us who are trusting in the work of Christ on our behalf. If I were to ask you, what is like the fundamental emotion? What is the expression on God's face when he thinks of you? When God thinks of you, what is, his, what is the disposition of his face? Is it disappointment? Is it anger? Is it exasperation? Is it impatience or irritation or even resentment? Him again. Her, you've got to be kidding me. Well, while it is true that our triune God desires our full worship and that he longs for us to stop short-circuiting our own joy, if you are united to Christ by faith, God is pleased with you. His disposition is that of acceptance and of love, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. 
One theologian says, God is not simply infinite distance. He is also infinite nearness. Think on that for like all week long. God is not merely infinite distance, but he is also infinite nearness. One can confide in him and speak to him. He hears, sees, and loves. Although he is not within time, he has time, even for me. Amen? He is patiently committed to your sanctification. Yes. That you might be fixed and anchored in the solution to your biggest problem, the forgiveness of your sins. But through that problem, he is committed to your comfort. That the relatively smaller problems, even of death, of loss, of alienation, of PTSD, these will not shake your fixed joy in the Lord. This is what we sang about in How Firm a Foundation, which is taken right from Isaiah 43, which we uh, heard in our assurance of pardon, that God does indeed call us into deep waters, but he is for us and with us. More on that as we go, but let's move now toward the, very, the, toward the first voice that comes then speaking to Judah, a voice of preparation. A voice cries, so God tells all these people, here, go come for my people, and then a voice actually then comes and begins shouting. And this voice says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. There is a messenger out there in the wilderness that is preparing the way of the coming king into the city. Just like how like secret service agents the Secret Service gets the president's travel schedule, like months, maybe years in advance, so that they can begin scouting the plan, uh, figuring out uh, the safest route, go make sure that everything is comfortable and safe for the president, smooth. So ancient kings also would send out advance parties as well. And this is hyper hyperbolic, of course, but if there is a mountain, blow it up. Get rid of it so that it is an easier trip for the coming king. If there is a valley, fill it on up so that the king can just walk, walk straight and level across the way. So then the people then are supposed to like leave Babylon and they are to make straight and level all the roads to Jerusalem. Like they need to get out there with like some front loaders and a couple bobcats and some jackhammers and some dynamite and then prepare a way, the, make the, the road very straight back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Well, if we would keep moving through Isaiah in chapter 57, Isaiah will then later say this in the same language, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. The people are coming back to Jerusalem and they're to have a, a uh, smooth road. But how are they to do this in chapter 57? If you keep reading that chapter, how are they to actually make a smooth and level road? Well, with contrite and with lowly hearts, not with jackhammer, jackhammers and dynamite. They're to come with repentance and penitence. Penitence and repentance are the blowing up of the mountains and the fillings of all of the valleys of the human heart. This is the way to prepare the way for the Lord. Repentance, humility, which is exactly how this passage then gets used in Matthew 3, where John the Baptist he shows up saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Matthew says that John is actually this Isaiah 40 voice out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And the way to prepare the way for the Lord, John the Baptist shows, then is to repent. Because while the coming of the king is great comfort to those who are safe and secure in his kingdom, the coming of the king is a day of dread and of fear and of judgment for those who are outside of the kingdom. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, especially even then after Jesus' first coming, the New Testament writers are pleading with their, their readers, pleading with their listeners to take the second coming, the coming of the king, as a day uh, just as seriously as you could possibly take it because the Lord is at hand. Jesus has come once and he will surely come again. So the New Testament writers, beginning with John the Baptist and then on and on throughout the rest of the Bible, are again and again and again saying, repent, turn, turn from trusting in your voice, trusting in yourself, listening only to yourself, and instead turn to listen to Christ. Lay down your arms, come, come home and away from your self-imposed exile. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, he said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save them when they repent. Let every heart prepare him room, we sing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps repent tonight for the very first time, that you might receive the king. Or repent tonight in an ongoing way. While there is an, certainly an initial turning to the Lord, an initial repentance, the course of the Christian life is constantly that of repentance and of belief, of hearing and returning, of being reoriented to the direction in which we are walking, preparing him room, and then receiving the king. The king who, verse 5, looks toward when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of the Lord being revealed in his birth in Bethlehem. The glory of the Lord being revealed in his death in Jerusalem, in his empty tomb, and in his ascension on high. Which brings us to the third voice. Why should we repent at God's glory? Well, because he is glory and we are not. Because we are creature and he is creator. Because we are certain, uncertain and he is certain. So third, a voice of certainty. A voice that says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Well, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If this is a chapter of comfort, this now seems to be a strange strategy, doesn't it? I comfort my people by telling them that they're all going to die. And there is certainly a sense in which the reality of death ought to cause us great unrest. We are not created for death, and death is certainly a great enemy. But yet, like Ecclesiastes teaches us, there is great benefit to considering our own mortality, towards considering our own coming death. As Americans, we like to do whatever we can to avoid even thinking about death. We pack our lives with as much fun and as much entertainment as possible. We avoid hospitals. We avoid funerals. We get plastic surgery and we dye our hair to perhaps 
convince others and ourselves that we're not getting old and not going to one day die. We even pull out our phones when we're at a stoplight for like 30 seconds to avoid even thinking about the difficulties of the day, which then might possibly remind us of the difficulties of life. But boy, if you like seriously take some time, perhaps take some time as you are falling asleep tonight to like listen to your pulse, perhaps even put your finger on your throat and feel your pulse and then consider the fact that one day it won't be there. That your actual heart, not your grandmother's heart or your grandfather's heart, but your physical heart will one day stop receiving activity from the brain and then it will slowly stop beating and you will die. And there is actually great comfort in that. Why? Well, it reminds me that God has created me with limits. And this is good. We live in a culture that tells us that you should have a limitless life. You ought to have it all. You ought to have a job that pays you a ton of money, but that job also should be a job that gives you like three or four months off in the year to go travel the world. You ought to have an amazing marriage and really great kids, but you also should live a life that celebrates your own self-fulfillment and sexual independence. We should eat great, but we should also look great. And we should just have lives that are great and then document the entire thing on social media. Your life is limitless, our culture tells us, but this is not reality. And so when we are operating under the illusion that my life is limitless and that I ought to have it all, then when the reality of life interrupts that meaning, maybe even detonates that meaning of life that I ought to have it all, that meaning of comfortable happiness, then we are inevitably driven to confusion, to despair. So what is the meaning of life? I've come to a, a good night here tonight at Christ Church where we consider what's the meaning of life, everyone? Well, if it's not comfortable happiness, what is it? Well, in the 1640s, a group of pastors and some laymen from some, church, from some churches around England, they got together and they wrote what would become the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And they, like us perhaps, they understood that this question of the meaning of life was very, very important to establish right off the top. So in question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one asks, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose? What is the ultimate end, the, the meaning, the purpose of your life? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen. This is the meaning of life. And perhaps that seems trite. Perhaps that seems, oh yeah, I came to a church service. Of course, they're going to say something like that. But like, let's begin to consider like the miles and miles of depth of that meaning. 
This is the meaning of life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to orient your very life, your hopes, your worship, your love towards the goodness of God, the glory of God, the power, the immensity, the love of God. And then, not to live like drab, colorless lives of seriousness and of just boredom, to live your life to glorify God, but the second half of that answer is also true. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as John Piper has noted, we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And this is important. Just this week, I've met and heard from several of you in lunches and coffees just this week that you are struggling with purpose that you are feeling unfulfilled in your job, that you feel like every day is kind of just the same. It's not really moving you forward toward anything. You feel like you're not nearly in the kind of place in your life that you thought you'd be by now. You're struggling for joy. Well, this is where the Shorter Catechism and even Piper's revision is so helpful. What is the chief end of man? To find a job that fulfills your passion? To see the world? To cross off line by line of your bucket list? To get married and to raise amazing kids? To be promoted to upper management or partnership in your company by your early 40s or something? To even just make enough to have a little bit left over by the end of the month after you've paid all your bills, just to save a little bit? Is that the chief end of man? Well, no. The chief end of man is not to enjoy the things of life, the benefits of life, but to enjoy God. At the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore, David writes. Like, are any of those things bad? Are good marriages, are uh, job promotions and vacations, are, all, are any of these things bad? That we shouldn't enjoy these things? No, not at all. Are these wonderful gifts to thank God for? Yes. But will any of these things, anything outside of the Lord and the security and comfort and joy that he offers give you the security and joy and comfort that you think that they will? No. It's all grass. Eventually, you will lose your ability to be productive. Eventually, you'll lose your status. Eventually, you'll begin, if not already, to begin to lose your family members. Eventually, you'll lose your health. Eventually, you'll lose all of your possessions because eventually, all of us in this room will die. All of it's grass. If none of it is able to bring you lasting security and joy, then they are all like icing on the cake. All of the gifts of the Lord are just icing. Joy in the Lord, who he is, what he has done, the forgiveness of sins, that's the actual cake. Joy is the cake and happiness is the icing. You ever notice that like, happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit? Happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Happiness comes and goes. There is much in our lives and in this world to lament and much in our lives and in this world to be immensely sad about. There is significant loss and God's care for you doesn't mean that you constantly walk around with like a perpetual bubbly smile of just happiness. 
But joy is a steady comfort in the Lord. Joy isn't a passive emotion, but it is a committed resolve to orient my emotions toward hope, no matter the circumstances. If happiness is my goal, if happiness is the meaning of my life, then real life is going to come and just obliterate my meaning. There is just too much sadness and loss out there to allow me to be constantly happy. And the modern Western life is to just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying to find more happiness to mask the reality of the emptiness of my life. It is just a constant attempt to get more icing with no cake to put it on. And this quest is ultimately unsuccessful for most of us. But if loving God, if loving others is the meaning of my life today, if glorifying God by enjoying Him today is the meaning of my life today, and if that translates then into loving and serving others more than just the isolation and the inward discouragement that I would be left to on my own, then now I have meaning. Like, do you know these people? There are several of them in this room. Do you know these kinds of people who just love God? They just love Him. They are constantly reading the Bible. They are constantly reading books about the Bible. They are wanting to know God more and more and more. They are constantly thinking about ways out of love for God to love others more than themselves. They seem to be like always praying, praying for you, praying for others. Like, do you know these people? You got somebody in your mind? Are they generally joyful? Is their joy generally fixed and anchored and secured? That no matter what happens in their lives, no matter, no matter what real, when real life comes in their life and threatens to obliterate their life, their Life is not going to be obliterated because their hope is anchored in the Lord. And of course, they long for the return of Christ. This present existence is far from their ultimate hope. But they are comforted and filled with meaning. So hear the voice of comfort tonight. Hear the voice of comfort that you might repent, that you might hear the voice of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, Consider the fleetingness of everything else in your life that you have attempted to find comfort in. Turn from that and have your sins forgiven. Or perhaps just feel the comfort of the Lord anew tonight. But then actively choose to respond. Like manna, God will give you the grace for today. He has not promised you uh, happiness for tomorrow or happiness for 10 years from now, but he has promised you joy for today. He has promised you hope for today. This is the day that the Lord has made. If that is true, then let us rejoice and be glad in it. And sometimes the first step out of the darkness, the first step out of hopelessness, of meaningless, is just to decide to begin the fight again, to begin the fight for joy again today. That God is real, he loves me. I know this because Jesus has lived and died for me. He desires my heart for eternity. He desires my comfort for today. So I will choose to believe that today by faith. 
living, loving him today, serving others today, because, shoot, if I'm honest, the things that I'm hoping in today, apart from him, they aren't keeping their promises anyway. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, all of the voices that have come so far, these are individual voices that God sends to his people, voices of comfort, voices of preparation and of certainty. But now, fourth and lastly, God sends out the collective voice of his people with a voice of good news. Or in verse 9, we read, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's one of the most tender descriptions of God in the whole of the Bible. Carrying his children in his bosom, gently leading those, gathering them in his arms. The people will be back in Jerusalem. They aren't even exiled out of Jerusalem yet. They aren't even in Babylon yet. But God is promising them that he will gather them in his arms like a tender shepherd and carry them home. And if this is the reality, if he has saved them and if he cares for them, then the people of God are to get up to the highest places. They are to get up to the mountaintop, the place where the greatest amount of people are to hear their voice. This is why all the radio towers are up on top of the Sandias. This is the highest reach of their signal. And they are to shout with a voice of strength. They are to shout the good news. Literally, they are to shout the gospel of the great king of heaven. The voice of comfort is a mountaintop voice. It is a mountaintop voice of strength. Fun fact, we sang this two weeks ago, but if you've never, never thought about it, go tell it on a mountain. That comes straight from Isaiah 40. The gospel of the good news that we are to go and tell from the mountain. Here, a mountaintop voice of strength and of comfort. We'll think through our mountaintop voices more practically next week in chapter 42. Much to think and consider next week. But let me share something that we share on this first week of every new member class. If you've been through a member class, you've heard this before. But here are some thoughts of the gospel being news to be spread and to be shared by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, news is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it, right? When you turn on the news or read the newspaper, there's nothing you can do about it. It is just a report of something that has happened. It has been done, and all you can do is respond to it. Now think this out. Here is a king, and the king goes into battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, a very happy envoy. He sends back good newsers with the report. They come back and they say, it has been defeated. All has been done. Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors. And he says, swordsmen over here, marksmen over there, 
horsemen over there. We're going to have to fight for our lives. Lloyd-Jones says that every other religion sends out military advisors to people. Every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, and here are the laws and regulations. Earthenworks over here, marksmen over here, fight for your life. But not with our king. Not with our king who has fought and won on our behalf, who has sent back a message of peace that we might live and respond in the daily habits and the daily comfort of our lives. What a gospel, what a king. Joy to the Lord. The Lord, or joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth, let all the earth receive her king. Let every heart in this room, in this room, Christ Church, let every heart prepare him room, prepare him space to be received and to be worshiped. And heaven and nature, along with us, sing the praises to our King. Let's pray that it might be so. Oh, Father, we are sorry for the ways in which we have attempted to comfort our own hearts, that we have attempted to find comfort in the things that you have given us to be enjoyed as gifts, but never as God's. Our Father, we pray now that we might hear the good news of the good King Jesus who has come to us in humility, who has died for us in humility, but has been raised in power, that we might be raised with him. Might this news of the forgiveness of sins fill us with fixed and anchored joy, that we might find the ultimate end and meaning of our life, to be about your glory and be about enjoying you. For at your right hand, O God, are pleasures forevermore. Might we actually believe that, pursue that, and know that, to be comforted by it. And we pray that all these things might be done for the sake of Christ in our lives and in the world and even the cosmos, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.